This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Talking with a therapist helps you feel more confident while you're navigating, figuring out who you are. Visit betterhelp.com super and take care of you because, well, you deserve to. What if Harry Potter had been sorted into Slytherin like the sorting had wanted instead of Gryffindor where he ended up? We're now five weeks into this question, and as we tackle book six, much has changed throughout Harry's journey. The basilisk remains alive beneath the school. The sword of Gryffindor is nowhere to be seen. Draco stunned Umbridge and Cedric. Well, yeah, no, Cedric is still dead. Apparently, some things are just destined to happen no matter which universe you're in. But it took a year longer and was at the hands of Lucius Malfoy this time. Year six is, of course, normally a huge year for the story. We see the arrival of Slughorn, learn about the Horcruxes, and of course, Snape kills Dumbledore. Or does he? Hey, brother, and welcome everyone to What If Harry Potter Was in Slytherin, the Half-Blood Prince. Okay, so as per always, our story begins in Spinner's End, where Bellatrix and Narcissa have arrived at Snape's home. And as usual, Narcissa is terrified because her son Draco has been given the task of killing Albus Dumbledore as punishment for Lucius's total blunder at the Ministry just months ago. And on the whole, this pretty much plays out the same. The prophecy was still unrecovered, and if anything, Lucius made an even bigger mess of things by also killing Cedric Diggory this time. Which on that note, I've gotten this question a lot. Why would Lucius kill Cedric? Is he really that trigger happy? And the answer is because Cedric is the only seventh year student there, a highly recognizable Triwizard champion, and the only one who the Death Eaters might have seen as a threat. Plus, instantly killing him really sets the tone for just how serious they're being. As such, Narcissa still asks Snape to enter an unbreakable vow with her to help Draco in his task. And Snape, as ever, agrees to shut Bellatrix up because she is being so annoying. The obvious big change in the situation, though, is where Draco's heart lies. If you recall, last we saw him, he was stunning Dolores Umbridge in her office to help out Dumbledore's army. But outside of the DA, none of the Death Eaters are aware that Draco helped them. So Draco, along with his parents' lives, are still on the line contingent upon Draco completing this task, which, of course, is still to kill Dumbledore. And you might be thinking, uh, wait a minute, isn't Voldemort like a super good legilimens? Wouldn't he be able to detect Draco's true allegiance? And while that's true, the answer is an almost unsurprising no. For two reasons. First, one of the cool things we actually learn about Draco in this year is that he, unlike Harry, is actually really talented at occlumency. Admittedly, probably not good enough to totally throw off Voldemort if Voldemort was like really trying, but this is gonna be another example of where Voldemort's arrogance is his absolute downfall. Because here's the thing. Voldemort would never see Draco as a threat at all. It's the same way he doesn't see house elves as a threat. Like, Draco is just so young as to otherwise be a non-entity. In fact, this is exactly like how it doesn't count when Harry gets in the boat in the cave to get the Horcrux later. Like, Voldemort just doesn't think that registers. Plus, on top of that, it's all just punishment anyway. It's not like he expects him to succeed. It's not even a real job. All that really just to say that, yes, Draco is indeed still tasked with killing Dumbledore. 
but he is on much better terms with Harry, so that should make for a much more interesting year. Speaking of Harry, though, he is again at the Dursleys, which, as usual in this retelling of things, has almost no bearing on anything. So once again, Harry is just laying there waiting for the arrival of Albus Dumbledore, who does indeed arrive and does still use the uh, mead to clink the Dursleys on the head. I think that's hilarious. That absolutely stays in. And from there, he and Harry set off on a special mission before he's going to drop him off at the burrow for the rest of the summer. I will say one small change. I couldn't tell you why this happened when Harry was in Slytherin, but the Dursley's Agapanthas look just like total garbage. I mean, that's just how it is. After retrieving Harry, though, Dumbledore and him set off to go recruit one of his old teachers, Professor Slughorn. And as they walk towards Slughorn's hiding spot, they discuss the brand new minister, which is of course still Rufus Scrimgeour. And Harry asks Dumbledore about his now black and tan, which as usual, he doesn't tell Harry anything about. But the main difference, and this is kind of a big one, is that Dumbledore is not wearing the ring in this situation. And that's because in this version of things, he has not yet destroyed the ring. Which is because, if you recall, way back in chapter two of this series, Harry never pulled the sword of Gryffindor out of the hat and then subsequently impregnated it with basilisk venom. Which is a really interesting problem for this particular version of events because, if you recall, in the main story, like, next year, the sword is super useful in destroying Horcruxes. But it also means that throughout the school year, Dumbledore is gonna be sitting up in his office with the undestroyed ring. And we all know how detrimental just being in proximity of a Horcrux can be over time. But back to old Horace though. Believe it or not, Harry actually has an even easier time recruiting Slughorn to return to his teaching post at Hogwarts this year because he's actually in Slughorn's old house, Slytherin. Which overall is good news, but unfortunately for Dumbledore, it leaves him with not nearly as much time to read about the new knitting patterns. Either way though, Harry is super successful and from there, he and Dumbledore head to the burrow where Harry has some thoroughly hot soup before turning into bed. As usual, he is awoken bright and early the next morning by the sounds of Ron and Hermione barging into his room, although he's probably a little bit more taken aback at the sight of Hermione just sitting at the edge of his bed. Ooh. Soon after, their OWL results come in, which are the same as usual, and this is also when Harry is usually made the Quidditch captain, but this time around he's actually been the Quidditch captain for a full year at this point. However, it turns out that in this version of events, Ron has been made the Gryffindor Quidditch captain in their sixth year, along with being a prefect. I mean, I have to say, Harry being in Slytherin really makes makes Ron's job of like filling Bill and Charlie's shoes like way easier. Not that any of that's expected of you, Ron. I mean, you do you, man. But that brings us back to Diagon Alley for some good old back to school shopping. And typically this trip is kind of a big deal. It's where the compass really starts pointing towards the newly imprinted dark mark on Draco's arm in Madame Malkin's robe shop, where he won't let her get anywhere near it. That said, this time around, they do still see him in the robe shop, but it doesn't turn into like a big shouting match like usual. It's just sort of like chilly. Draco obviously has to keep up appearances for his mother. But really, while they might not be like best friends forever, or anything. At this point, from Harry's point of view, they are really leaning towards much closer to allies than anything else. As such, later on in the day, when Draco gives his mother the slip to head down Nocturne Alley and go to Borgen and Burks, the Golden Trio don't have to like tail him under the invisibility cloak. They just confront him directly and ask what he's doing. Draco, wait up. What was all that about in Malkins? Where are you headed? Sorry, Potter, I don't have time to talk. I have my part to play in all of this and I don't need you three butting in. And honestly, a little taken aback, Harry, Ron, and Hermione are confused as to why Draco helped them at the end of the last year, but now he's being so secretive. Think he's mad because his dad took an Azkaban? Says Ron through a mouthful of food. 
probably. Could be, but I thought it wasn't on very good terms with his father anymore, says Harry through a mouth with no food in it at all, though it has to be said, very good breath. Still, even if you're not on good terms with your parents, I don't think you want them chucked in Azkaban. I don't think even Percy would want your parents locked up, Ron, says Hermione wisely through her still large front teeth. I'm not really sure you need to know what was going on with everyone's mouth in that scene, but uh, I'll tell you what, it felt relevant while we were writing it. But that brings us to the Hogwarts Express, which goes down quite differently, I have to say. I mean, the Slug Club certainly still happens with all of the same invitees. That includes Belby, Blaze, Cormac, Ginny, Neville, and Harry. Surprisingly, Belby doesn't choke on the chicken bone this time. Lucky him. The big difference, of course, is that Harry is way less suspicious of Draco this time around. So after the slug club meeting, he doesn't follow Blaze back to the Slytherin compartment, doesn't hide in the luggage racks, and then doesn't get Petrificus Totalis by Draco and left for dead under the invisibility cloak with a broken nose. Which also means Tonks doesn't come along to find him and doesn't send up a Patronus messenger, so Harry doesn't notice that she has a new Patronus. Instead, Harry just returns back to his old compartment where Ron is looking chilly about not being invited to the slug club, but at least is making Luna laugh about something. The two of them, I guess, were just hanging out. I don't know. The feast itself goes about as usual, except of course Harry is sitting at the Slytherin table where Draco asks him how the slug club went. Harry says it was fine, but really just feels relieved that Draco isn't upset with him after their meeting in Nocturne Alley. But he does ask him about it again, and Draco responds very casually, oh, that was nothing to worry about. Just browsing some shops for my mother. She doesn't like to be seen in Nocturne Alley anymore. Not since my father was locked up. Harry doesn't press the matter any further, but also doesn't think this answer adds up very much as if that was the case, Draco easily could have just said that when they met him in the alley. Otherwise, Slughorn is introduced as the new potions master and Snape still gets the defense against the dark arts job. The next morning, all the six years head down to the Great Hall to get their schedules approved by their heads of houses and Snape informs Harry that he is truly lucked out that he never would have accepted his E-O-W-L into his six-year potions class, but that Slughorn will. Ron, of course, gets the exact same news from McGonagall, and so together they head down to potions class where they obviously don't have the books, so Slughorn still has to loan them out copies of advanced potion making. And as usual, Harry ends up with the Half-Blood Prince's copy of the book. Class itself, of course, proceeds as usual, except that when Harry smells the Amortentia, he smells Treacle Tart, the woody handle of a broom stick and old parchment that for some reason reminds him of the library? Either way, Slughorn offers Felix Felicis as the prize for the day, and Harry, as usual, wins. Harry then also has his first lesson with Snape, and honestly, it's a lot easier for us to keep track of all the students now, because if you're in the NEWT level, you just have it with everyone who's having the class. There's no weird house splitting up anymore. Which means Draco is in the class. I mean, he usually is. The big difference is that he is much more motivated to learn about Defense Against the Dark Arts this year. So, when the subject of Inferi crops up, as it inevitably does, Draco raises his hand and asks whether or not Fiendfire would be effective at defeating them. And Snape confirms that while it would be effective, it might then be even more dangerous than the initial Inferi you had been facing. This is because only highly powerful defensive water charms, certain goblin-made armors, or just waiting for the fire to peter out is the only way to defeat Fiendfire. His real advice is Snape's exact approach to shampoo, that the best course of action is just to avoid using it altogether. Snape's boggart is a shower. After this lesson is when Harry receives his first note from Dumbledore summoning to one of his private lessons. Ron reads the note over his shoulder and exclaims, Why does he like acid pops? 
Harry, of course, explains that the password to the office is always some kind of candy. Sherbet lemon. Harry's lesson with Dumbledore is pretty much the same, though. They're just diving into memories, which, of course, all happened way before this story started, so they're all the exact same. This one in particular, though, in case you're wondering, is when they visit the Gaunt family shack and Morphin is accused of attacking Tom Riddle. The only real difference this time around is that Harry notices that maybe Dumbledore looks a shade paler than usual, or, I don't know, maybe it was just the lighting in the room. Hmm. Either way, next up is Quidditch tryouts, although obviously Harry is the Slytherin Quidditch captain this year, not Gryffindor. That's Ron. Nonetheless, everyone knows Harry is telling the truth now, and he has a huge number of people show up to tryouts, including a rogue batch of Hufflepuffs. But really, what's more concerning to Harry is who doesn't show up. Draco. Harry, of course, confronts him afterwards and asks why he wasn't at tryouts and is surprised to learn that Draco has decided not to play this year. He explains he's too ashamed after his father killed Cedric last year and thinks it would just be better for everyone if he didn't play. Harry disagrees but is unable to convince Draco to rejoin the team and once again feels like he's not getting the full truth out of Draco. Ron's running of the Gryffindor team tryouts, however, are obviously a lot different this year other than like Lavender still showing up. I mean, she's, she's definitely still got the hots for old Ronnie this year. But since Ron's the captain, he doesn't have to worry about whether or not he beats McClagan at tryouts for a keeper. He just assigns himself the role of keeper. But we all know that's not McClagan's only skill. We also know he's very good at catching very fast moving small things. So after tryouts, Ron decides to go ahead and give McClagan a chance at Seeker, making his team himself, Ginny, Katie Bell, Dean Thomas, and Peaks and Coot, along with McClagan. Now, usually in the books during year six, Ron is a nervous mess when it comes to playing Quidditch, but this time around, he has had like years and years of experience, so his nerves aren't so much about whether or not he's going to play well, but instead have everything to do with being a good Quidditch captain, something that is made much worse by McClagan's presence on the team. He is, after all, an older seventh-year student who actually is pretty good at Quidditch. Guess we'll just have to see how it all unfolds. Not long after this, Harry is flipping through his copy of Advanced Potion Making and discovers the Levy Corpus spell, which he tries out at random in the dorms, and instead of lifting Ron up into the air, uh, lifts Draco up into the air by his ankle. Draco does not find this to be quite the laugh that Ron usually does, but Harry apologizes and asks whether or not he maybe wants to meet up in Hogsmeade later that day. Draco tensely accepts the apology, but says he's not going to Hogsmeade that day. It's just way too cold out, which Harry finds to be a very lame excuse. Now, typically, this is the Hogsmeade visit where Katie Bell gets the necklace and then touches it and gets super duper cursed, but that doesn't actually happen this time. Like, yes, Draco is still working on his mission, but he's not being nearly as reckless about it. Because really, his only motivation here is to save his family. It's not really about killing Dumbledore. Like, he's not actually trying to impress Voldemort. After this, Harry has yet another private lesson with Dumbledore, this time to watch Dumbledore recruit the 11-year-old Tom Riddle from the orphanage. The memory itself is, of course, the same as ever, but Harry can't help but notice Dumbledore seems to have a small cough. But that leads us into our first Quidditch match of the year, Gryffindor versus Slytherin. Let's go! Usually, this is the match where Harry fakes putting the Felix Felicis in Ron's pumpkin juice and, like, placebos him into playing amazing. However, obviously, that's not going down this time. Harry's not going to help the Gryffindor team win this match. I mean, snakes for life, right? That said, for being honest, 
Harry does not love his odds in this match. He knows Ron is a really good keeper and Ginny is a really good chaser and that his own team is comparatively very young and his best chaser decided to quit. Turns out though that McLagan is just as big a problem for Ron as he was for Harry and that instead of looking for the snitch, he is busy just trying to tell all the other players what to do. Ron himself is actually playing great, but at one point McLagan is trying to show one of the beaters how to swing their bat and hits a bludger which goes way off course and hits Ron in the shoulder, breaking it. Ron howls in pain, but manages to clutch onto his broom with his unbroken arm and stay aloft. And with Ron injured, Harry's young team begins scoring much faster, although it has to be said, not with ease. Ron, who is getting paler by the minute, still manages to actually block a couple of goals simply by obstructing the hoops with his body or else kicking the quaffle. And Harry, for his part, obviously wants to win the game, but is really upset with McLagan for taking out Ron. So he decides to try out the old Ronsky feint, which to be clear is a move he saw Victor Crumb doing at the World Cup and is not named after Ron painting, which to be fair, in this exact moment is at risk. But McLagan buys it hook, line, and sinker. Harry dives for the unseen snitch and McLagan follows in hot pursuit, but he's just no match for the fireball. Harry pulls a full length ahead of McLagan and positions himself directly in front of him, pulling him into his slipstream and obstructing his view. Harry picks up even more speed and then less than a foot from the ground, pulls up from the dive. McLagan, not so lucky. He hits the ground broom first before tumbling onto the ground over and over and over over and over and over. Wow, it's like Lightning McQueen. But then with no seeker and a very injured keeper, Slytherin goes on to an easy victory. After the game, Ron performs his own version of the Ron faint and collapses out of pure pain, but wakes up in the hospital bed ready to kill McLagan, but still thinks Harry's faint was brilliant. Slytherin's victory here actually changes a lot. Typically after this match is when Harry and Ron discover Ginny and Dean snogging up a storm in some corridor in their post-match euphoria, which ends up with Ginny and Ron having this whole screaming match where Ginny taunts Ron for never having kissed anyone and points out that Harry kissed Joe and Hermione kissed Crumb. And usually this prompts Ron to become like super upset with Hermione for like literally half the book. And then he starts also dating Lavender, not just to make Hermione jealous, but also to prove Ginny wrong. But obviously none of that happens this time. I mean, Gryffindor didn't win to begin with. Ron's in the hospital wing and doesn't even have a crush on Hermione. So as a result, Ron does not immediately start dating Lavender after this. Although I like to think she still sends him kind of an aggressive get well soon card in the hospital wing that he's a little put off by. <sighs> But, and this is fun, the other thing Ron actually wakes up to is an invite to the next Slug Club party. Which is a big change for Ron. I mean, typically, Slughorn can't remember Ron's name, like, the whole book. Good to see you, Wallenby. But this time around, Ron is Quidditch captain, he's a prefix. Slughorn would have heard about Ron being present with Harry at the Ministry of Magic. And after watching this last match where Ron is playing with a broken shoulder, he says he's rarely witnessed such a display of bravery. On the other side of things though, Harry's team, Slytherin, did win the match. And afterwards, Hermione comes to congratulate him, saying that his Ronsky fate looked just like Victor's. Which I think we can all agree, there was really no call for using his first name in that situation. At these words, however, Harry feels genuine pangs of jealousy and for the first time ever lets himself consider how he might actually feel about Hermione, but he definitely doesn't go like way off the deep end with it like Ron does. I've never really thought about it, but 
I suppose, yeah. If anything, he actually tries to talk himself out of the idea over and over, not wanting to risk their friendship for anything. But that said, Slughorn's Christmas party is right around the corner and people need dates. Things are about to get wet. Harry's words, not mine. Harry, as usual, is in very high demand this year, but personally really only wants to ask Hermione, but is reluctant to do so because he doesn't want to make things weird. Hermione usually goes to this party with McLagan, who does still have a crush on her in this version of things, but she only ever does that to make Ron jealous, and that's not really in play this year. On the whole, she's really just having to avoid McLagan around the common room as much as possible, but it's getting hard. But then one morning when Hermione's having breakfast with Harry and Ron in the Great Hall, Cormac finally spots her and comes over and interjects himself into the conversation. And here he asks her point blank to go to the party with him, somewhat catching her off guard. Harry, seeing her struggle to say no is struck with inspiration and speaks up. Actually, she just agreed to go with me, right? Hermione looks back startled, but confirms this answer. Cormac, however, looks quite grumpy about the situation as he slinks away. Hermione then thanks Harry for getting out of the situation and gives him a quick wink before she heads off to ancient ruins. And then there's Ron, who's normally not at this party at all, but now is in need of a date. Almost comically, just after Hermione leaves, the exact same situation proceeds to play out for Ron. Ginny and Luna sit down with Ron and Harry, Hermione having just told Ginny that Harry and her are going to the party together. And it's at this moment when Lavender arrives on the scene and asks Ron if he'll go with her to Slughorn's party, which is really presumptuous. It's not like she has an invite to even give. Ron, inspired by Harry's quick thinking not moments ago, looks up and says, actually, Luna's just agreed to go with me. Right? Luna stares back at Ron, completely unfazed in any way at all, and simply says, Yes, I'd love to go with you to Slughorn's party. Harry stares at Luna, unsure whether she was caught off guard or was just completely prepared for a situation like this. Lavender storms off, and Ron, of course, makes it very clear to Luna that this is just his friends. All in all, Slughorn's party is way more fun than usual. There's way less romantic politics floating around. The only real thing that happens is Draco gets caught gate crashing. Snape still escorts him out of the party, and Harry still lets his curiosity get the better of him and sneaks around and follows them. And you might think that this time around, with Draco's allegiance being on the other side of things, that he would actually just accept the help from Snape this time. But he still doesn't. And that's because from Draco's point of view, Snape is a full-on Death Eater, and as we said, Draco is really not committed to their cause. That said, he's probably less of an overall jerk to Snape, but still uses all of the same arguments. The really alarming thing for Harry, though, is that he had not considered at all that Draco could possibly be a Death Eater or working for Voldemort somehow? But this leads to the Christmas at the Borough, where, as usual, Harry tells Mr. Weasley and Lupin about the conversation he overheard between Snape and Draco. And as usual, they just talk him down, saying, don't you think Snape was trying to get information out of Draco? I mean, after all, his father is a Death Eater. And Harry chooses this time to confide in them that none of it seems to add up, that last year Draco actually helped them out with the DA by stunning Umbridge. But since then, he seems to have been dodging them and making up lame excuse after lame excuse. He even tells them about the Levicorpus incident, which causes Remus to reminisce about how it was such a popular spell when he was at school, which causes Harry to ask him if he knew anyone by the name of the Half-Blood Prince, but of course, he doesn't. Scrimgeour, of course, also shows up during Christmas breakfast to, uh, you know, have a chat with Harry out in the garden about whether or not he wants to help the Ministry out, and Harry, as ever, does not. But that brings us right back to school and Harry's next lesson with Dumbledore, where he witnesses Voldemort kill his father and grandparents and frame his uncle Morphin for the crime. And it's the first time Harry sees the tampered memory of Slughorns, where Tom Riddle is asking about Horcruxes, which results in Dumbledore giving Harry homework. 
collect the rest of the memory. And as usual, Harry makes a complete blunder of this right out of the gate. During his next class with Slughorn, they're working on antidotes. Harry has no answers in the Half-Blood Prince's copy of Advanced Potion Making and has to present a Bezoar at the end of class, which Slughorn is just enamored with, and yet, despite his good mood, is still extremely put off when Harry asks him about Horcruxes and realizes exactly what he's up to and starts avoiding him at all costs. Dumbledore put you up to this, didn't he? And guys, real quick, we need to give a huge thank you to today's sponsor, BetterHelp. Most things in life need maintenance, whether it's your house, your relationship, your spell work, your hobbies, or your mind. And bottom line, how we take care of our mind affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time into keeping them healthy. And look, I'll be honest, even just a few years ago, I personally wouldn't have thought that I needed to do extra levels of maintenance, take that extra step to maintain my mental health. In general, I felt pretty content. And while of course there were hard times because you know, life is life, I always felt like, yeah, I can manage this pretty well. But a little while into adulthood, I realized that therapy can help anyone at any time, even if you're not in one of those like really difficult low places. In fact, I found it to be really beneficial even when I'm in a pretty good place because it really is just maintenance for your mind and it can really help you learn how to make those moments of struggle a little bit easier, which is why I would personally recommend therapy to anyone, no matter your situation. And BetterHelp is a great option. They have video, phone, and even just live chat sessions so you don't have to be on camera with your therapist if you don't want to be. Plus it is affordable and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And bonus, our viewers can get 10% off their first month when they head to betterhelp.com super. Again, that's betterhelp.com super for 10% off your first month. Link is in the description down below. But that brings us to Ron's birthday, where he is coming of age and turning 17. Happy birthday, Ron! Now, normally on his birthday, Ron is opening all of his gifts in the Gryffindor dorm room while Harry looks for Draco on the Marauder's map. And it is also usually when Ron consumes the chocolate cauldron spiked with the love potion that Romilda gave to Harry. I have to imagine Romilda still has the crush on Harry, but since he's not in Gryffindor, she just has a lot less access to him this year, so it's not like as big a deal. But sometimes fate is just fate, though, and Ron consuming a love potion on his 17th birthday. It's just one of those things. It's beautiful, isn't it? The moon. It's like Accio Firebolt! Or Cedric died. The difference here is that Harry and Ron are actually together down in the Great Hall where they've met up so Harry can give Ron his birthday gift. Ron arrives at the table with some of his other gifts and an assortment of sweets, all of which he's received for his birthday, including a box of chocolate cauldrons. Ron thanks Harry for the new keeper's gloves and while Harry dives into his morning baked potato, Ron dives into some of his sweets. And that's when it happens. I can't stop thinking about Harry. Except this time it wasn't Romilda Vane. It was Lavender. Having been embarrassed before Slughorn's party, Lavender has now sunk to truly drastic measures to get Ron's attention. Much to Harry's shock, Ron suddenly goes completely dumbfounded and immediately begins professing his love for Lav Lav. I think I love her. Harry, as ever, is extremely caught off guard and disgusted by Ron's use of the phrase Lav Lav as his one true love love. Needless to say, he can definitely tell something is off off. What are you talking about, mate? You've been prattling along all year about how annoying she is. For this, Ron punches Harry right in his baked potato. <laughs> Harry and the baked potatoes is always funny. Mm, we got it. For this, Ron punches. <laughs> We're gonna get it, Riley, don't worry. For this, Ron punches Harry right in his baked potato-filled mouth and makes off for the common room, intent on finding Lavender. Harry, blood pouring from his nose, reaches after Ron, but it's too late. 
he's off. But knowing Ron would never forgive him for letting him make contact with Lavender whilst in this bizarre state, Harry scans the Great Hall for someone who can help and manages to spot Luna at the end of the Ravenclaw table, eating by herself. Luna, stop Ron, he's jinxed the poison to something! Harry yells. Luna, again, not looking startled at all by the situation, stands up in a nearly robotic fashion, aims her wand at Ron and shouts, stupefy. Thanks, Luna, says Harry, arriving at her side. I think he's been fed a love potion or something. We need to get him up to the hospital wing. It looks to me more like he's been infested with raxperts. They float in through your ears and make your brain all funny. You look dreadful, Ron. Uh, <clears throat> right, said Harry, not sure how to respond to Luna. Do, do you think you could help me get him up to the hospital wing, though? Now, typically after this, Ron is brought to Slughorns, where he is immediately cured and then almost even more immediately poisoned. But now, since he's just unconscious, they just bring him to the hospital wing, where Harry has to leave him because he has Quidditch practice, but Luna stays and is there when he wakes up. And as he wakes up, much to his complete confusion, he sees her protuberant eyes and says, Luna? That said, since Ron wasn't poisoned this time, he's not in the hospital wing for like an entire week, meaning he is present to play in the Gryffindor vs. Hufflepuff match, where guess who's commentating? Luna! Harry and Miney, of course, attend the match to watch Ron and are in absolute stitches listening to Luna commentate about Ron. Ron Weasley catches the quaffle. He is very funny. He asked me to go to Professor Slughorn's Christmas party with him as friends. It was very lovely. I don't get asked to many parties. Ron, who is blushing an impressive shade of red, laughs along with everyone else and thinks to himself, wow, that Luna Lovegood is really growing on me. But then, of course, his attention is immediately torn back to the match where McClagg is at it again. After the last match, in an effort to make sure that McClagan doesn't have such an effect on the score, Ron has moved him to Beater and Ginny to Seeker while Coot plays Chaser. As usual though, McClagan is just barking orders to all the other players, telling Ginny she should first circle the pitch low and then high to cover more ground looking for the snitch. Ron is obviously unhappy about this and yells back at McClagan to just focus on the bludgers. Now Ron Weasley is yelling at his Beater, Cormac McClagan. He broke Ron's shoulder in the last match. He asked Hermione Granger to the Christmas party, but she went with Harry Potter instead. This brings Harry, Hermione, and a majority of the stands to near tears with laughter. But only for a second, because feeling highly embarrassed, Cormac spots Harry and Hermione in the crowd and aims an oncoming bludger, not at the other team, but at Harry, who, bent over laughing at Luna's commentary, does not see the bludger coming and is knocked out. When Harry awakens, he is now in the hospital wing and has Ron and Hermione by his bed, and as he comes to, Hermione squeezes his hand. Ron informs Harry that McClagan is now officially off the team, especially since Gryffindor just lost the match. They also tell Harry that, once again, Draco was not there. And typically this is when Harry reflects back on Dobby's bludger and thinks of having creature tail Draco, but this time around he's not actually aware that Dobby is the one who set up the rogue bludger, so he does not come to this conclusion in this moment and does not have Dobby and creature start tailing Draco. He does however decide to pay much more attention to where Draco keeps disappearing off to, a task that promises to be much easier this time around since they are actually in the same house. But before he can put too much attention into that, Dumbledore summons him to his office once again for another lesson. As usual, this is the same, except Dumbledore looks tired, or could it be sick? Harry is reminded of how Lupin often looked the morning after the full moon when they were teaching. He briefly wonders in his mind whether or not Dumbledore could have been bitten, but it seems so unlikely, but 
What's wrong with his hand? This particular trip into the pensive, though, just so we're keeping track of things, is when Harry sees Hepzibah Smith show Tom Riddle the locket in the cup and then frames her house elf Hokey for killing Hepzibah when he steals the two items. And they witness Voldemort's return to Hogwarts to request the position of defense against the Dark Arts from Dumbledore, who is now the headmaster and who, of course, refuses. Which Dumbledore reveals is why the defense against the Dark Arts position has been jinxed and they haven't been able to keep a teacher in that position for more than a year. This is also when Dumbledore scolds or, well, projects extremely cold disappointment at Harry for not having put his full effort into retrieving Slughorn's memory, which Harry decides he's going to fully commit to instead of worrying about Malfoy. But even as Harry's thinking about this, his mind is still whirling with the images of Hepzibah Smith and her house elf, Hokey. And Harry remembers that he now has a house elf, Creature, who's working there at Hogwarts, and he can have Creature follow Malfoy. He summons Creature to the spot, and of course, Creature arrives with Dobby. Harry tells them about his request for them to follow Draco around and find out where he's going, but it turns out they don't have to. Dobby all already knows. Normally, Dobby tells Harry about the room of requirement in Order of the Phoenix, but this time Harry just used the Chamber of Secrets for the DA meeting, so he had no need of that. Which, speaking of the DA meetings in the Chamber of Secrets and everyone riding the basilisk up back into the school, we asked you guys last time to submit fan art of that happening, and oh my gosh, did you guys deliver? I love them. So you guys, they, like, they're so creative. I can't believe how many people with the Magic School Bus theme but I love it. I love it. I love it. Thank you guys so much. Anyway, Dobby tells Harry all about the come and go room or the room of requirement that it's probably where Draco's been because he spent so much time in there last year. How do you know that, Dobby? Dobby told him about it, sir. Last year when you were holding your defense meetings, Master Malfoy summoned Dobby and asked him if he knew of a place he could practice spells and not be noticed. Harry remembers all too well the evening Draco had overheard him talking to Sirius, wondering about this exact question before stepping out of the shadows and offering up the Chamber of Secrets as a location. And you came when he called, asked Harry, surprised that Dobby would still take orders from Malfoy, his former master. It is an old habit, sir, but Dobby does not hate his old master, Draco. It was he who freed Dobby at Harry Potter's request, sir. And suddenly pieces of the puzzle start sliding into place in Harry's brain, who remembers Draco's really powerful shield charm in Umbridge's office. But how do you know that's where he's going now? Asks Harry. Dobby has seen him in there, sir. Dobby must use the room sometimes to hide Winky's butterbeer bottles and saw Master Draco. But I am not seeing what he was doing, sir. Thanks, Dobby. You've been a real help. And with that, he forbids Creature and Dobby from telling anyone any of this information and has them leave. Then the next day, after everyone else has left the dorm, Harry confronts Draco directly about the situation. And with a look that's half horrified and half relieved, Draco admits that he did use the Room of Requirement the previous year to practice defensive magic. And admits he's been continuing to use the room this year to work on a specific project, but he won't tell Harry what it is. Harry, thinking again of the shield charm in Umbridge's office, asks, You helped us last year, and now you've become so distant. It's possible we could help, you know. I do owe you, after all. Draco looks absolutely torn under the weight of keeping a secret, but also wanting to accept the help. Finally, he speaks, saying, I can't tell you what I'm doing, but it is a matter of life and death. And if you want to pay me back, I could really use some of that Felix Felicis. Harry, partly out of fear for what Draco means by this and partly out of his own desire to use the Felix Felicis himself, pauses before finally telling Draco he'll think about it. Meanwhile, apparition tests are upon the sixth years and Hermione and Ron are old enough to take them. Hagrid sends a note to Harry asking him to come to Aragog's funeral and Harry reads more of the Half-Blood Prince's version of advanced potion making and discovers the spell Sectum Sempra, noted for enemies in the margin. The next day, Harry's eating dinner, a baked potato, 
probably, and considering whether or not he should share the Felix Felicis with Draco. When? Slughorn's memory! I can use the Felix Felicis to get it! He exclaims to Hermione, who's looking gloomy after hearing about Harry's conversation with Draco, and Ron, who's looking glum having failed his apparition test by a single half-eyebrow. I mean, come on! All I need's a bit of luck. That's brilliant! Hermione exclaims, beaming at him. You'll need your cloak! Ron exclaims, and Harry races off to the dungeon to get it before returning with the cloak and the tiny glass bottle. Once back, the three wait for Slughorn to finish his rather large meal and retire to his office for the evening before Harry decides to take about three hours worth of the potion. Upon taking the potion, Harry is filled with the infinite sense of possibility and, as usual, declares he's going to Hagrid's. I've got a really good feeling about Hagrid's. I feel it's, it's the place to be tonight. Do you know what I mean? Ron and Hermione move to protest because to them this obviously makes no sense, but Harry insists it's the place to be. He throws on the cloak and heads out the door, and Ron and Hermione are helpless to do anything except follow him out of the Great Hall. Then, appearing alone, Ron and Hermione run into none other than Cormac McLaggen, who, recently embarrassed and cut from the Gryffindor team, immediately approaches them and starts berating Ron. He says it was all that loony Lovegood's commentating that just got under his skin, and looking at Hermione, says whenever she's ready to ditch Potter, he'd be happy to take her out. This sparks reactions from both Ron and Hermione. I thought Luna was brilliant, says Ron, who couldn't have timed his response better because wouldn't you know it, Luna herself walks around the corner at that exact moment to find the scene. Meanwhile, Hermione spits back, I never ditch Harry for someone like you. Harry, under the cloak, feels his cheeks burn hot. He and Hermione are, of course, not even together for him to be ditched in the first place. But he can't help but smile that Hermione came to his defense anyway. But from there, Harry exits the scene, finds Slughorn over by the vegetable patches, invites him to Aragog's funeral down at Hagrid's, where the two toast Aragog's death get a little bit tipsy, it has to be said, and Harry very slyly coaxes the memory out of Slughorn. And from there, Harry heads directly to Dumbledore's office, where the two dive into the final memory and see that Voldemort is seeking a seven-part soul. After they view this memory, Dumbledore finally reveals the story about how his hand became so blackened and reveals, out of a small box, the ring from the gaunt memory that Harry had seen Tom Riddle himself wearing in the Slughorn memory. Unusually, when Dumbledore opens the box, Harry thinks he sees Dumbledore wince in pain, as if the ring's mere presence in the room is causing him physical harm. Bear in mind, in this version of events, the ring has not yet been destroyed because Dumbledore does not have the Sword of Gryffindor, which has also not been impregnated with Basilisk Venom. Meaning that at present, even if the Sword of Gryffindor was there, they couldn't do anything with it. What Dumbledore does finally have, though, is Slughorn's final memory, and as such, he is ready to tell Harry all of his suspicions about what Voldemort's other Horcruxes are. And, despite the late hour, asks Harry if he'd be willing to accompany him to a room that Harry knows well, the Chamber of Secrets. Harry asks why, and Dumbledore explains that in order to destroy a Horcrux, you need to use very powerful dark magic, or else use extremely deadly venom, none of which Dumbledore allows inside the castle. But, he tells Harry, as I've dived into Voldemort's past, I realized you have found a way to destroy them. Putting the pieces together, Harry realizes the Basilisk. The Basilisk can destroy Horcruxes, just like it destroyed the Diary. Yes, Harry, the Basilisk can destroy Horcruxes. And for that, I have once again needed your help. I, of course, am not a parcel mouth, and can therefore not open the chamber. 
and even if I could, I certainly could not hope to command the basilisk with it. Together, they head down to the Chamber of Secrets, and Harry summons the basilisk, and Dumbledore places the ring on the ground in front of it. Harry tells the basilisk to strike, but as it moves to do so, almost as if it can sense the presence of the thing that can destroy it in the room, the ring begins to vibrate. The basilisk lunges, but as it does, the ring lets out a huge blast of light and the basilisk recoils. Out of the black stone, a floating image of a girl Harry had never seen before began to emerge. She had long blonde hair and Harry thought she looked somewhat familiar. You killed me, the girl bellows at Dumbledore. You killed me. Dumbledore, like Harry had never seen him before, stood absolutely frozen, clearly too stunned by the girl's appearance to do anything. Sir, Harry called out, but Dumbledore still didn't move. Sir, what was going on? I would be alive if it weren't for you, the girl screams again. Finally, Harry thinks he understands. This must be some sort of dark magical defense built into the Horcrux. He turns to the basilisk once again and commands it to strike. It does. This time, it connects. The floating image of the girl ripples to the ground like burning ash, and Harry turns to Dumbledore. Dumbledore thanks Harry and tells him he was very brave, and promises he can assist him if he finds another Horcrux. But who was she? asked Ron the next day. No idea, says Harry, who felt certain he had seen the girl before, but couldn't quite place her in his memory. But really, at this moment, Harry's not paying Ron much attention. He's searching the Marauder's map for Draco. He's finally decided that after feeling the effects of it himself, he will offer Draco some of the Felix Felicis. He is surprised to find him, though, in a bathroom next to, of all ghosts, Moaning Myrtle? He heads to the bathroom and finds Draco in complete tears, which further confirms his decision to offer Draco blind help in whatever endeavor he's facing. Upon hearing this news, Draco rallies almost at once. He is so grateful and thankful to Harry for this, and the two decide that they will work out what night to do it later. And now clearly, this is a huge change from the main story. Typically, when Harry finds Draco in the bathroom, the two have some big duel, and Harry uses Sectum Sembro, which causes Snape to put him in detention every Saturday for the rest of the year. It also then forces him to go hide his copy of Advanced Potion Making in the Room of Requirement, where normally he somewhat inadvertently lays hands on the diadem itself to mark the book's spot, but that doesn't happen this time. Harry doesn't get detention, he doesn't have to go to the Room of Requirement, and he keeps his book. And without detention, he is free to watch the final Quidditch match of the year, Gryffindor versus Ravenclaw. Not that it super matters, as Slytherin and his team have wrapped up the Quidditch Cup with an impressive 3-0, and Gryffindor is already sitting at 0-2, but nonetheless, fun to watch. But in case you're wondering about the lineup, obviously McLagan is gone at this point, and has been replaced by Seamus, who is playing Chaser, Ginny is back at seek. But possibly even more importantly, Luna is commentating, and it has to be said, with an unusual bias for the Gryffindor Keeper, despite her herself being uh, in Ravenclaw. But that that, at last, brings us to the evening of the Lightning Struck Tower. It's the last days of the school year, and also the very day he and Draco have finally agreed to let him take a swig of Felix Felicis. But almost immediately upon giving a bit of the potion to Draco, Harry is summoned to Dumbledore's office, who has apparently found another Horcrux. Harry heads immediately to Dumbledore's office, but not before giving Ron the rest of the Felix Felicis first. Not because he doesn't trust Draco, but just because he's aware that under the potion's influence, no defense Harry sets up will be able to stop Draco from getting the rest of it 
it if that's suddenly what he wants to do. But if he gives it to Ron, then Draco won't even know where to look. So since he guesses he's about to be heading into a pretty dangerous situation of his own, he tells Ron, if you end up needing it for any reason, feel free to drink it. Terry and Dumbledore's journey to the cave to retrieve the locket, though, goes pretty much exactly the same. Dumbledore does a magnificent breaststroke, offers blood to the cave wall, finds the chain, gets in the boat, goes to the island, drinks the potion. The big difference is that the drink of despair makes Dumbledore even weaker than he usually is in the main story, which is all the result of having spent so much time in the same room as the ring throughout the year. On top of that, once Dumbledore starts screaming about whatever he's seeing in his head under the influence of the potion, it is clear to Harry that it has very much to do with whoever that floating girl was down in the Chamber of Secrets. Nonetheless, Dumbledore still finishes the potion, they still collect the locket, and he's still able to help Harry fend off the inferior, but he can barely walk and is having a lot of trouble breathing. When Harry and Dumbledore arrive back at Hogsmeade, they are immediately told by Rose Myrta that the Dark Mark has appeared upon the Astronomy Tower. She's not actually under the Imperius curse this time, but there's still really no reason she wouldn't just tell them this right away. Dark Mark. Time for smoke. Harry summons Rosmurta's brooms, but quickly realizes that him and Dumbledore are going to have to share. Dumbledore is just too weak to even ride his own broom. When they land on the tower, Dumbledore slides off his broom and immediately feels his wand leave his hand and hears the words, Harry looks up and is shocked to see, standing before them, wand raised, Draco Malfoy. No! exclaims Harry. This is what you needed the potion for? Comprehension dawning all over his face. Who have you killed? Why is the dark mark in the sky? Draco, his whole body shaking, responds, I, I haven't killed anyone. But Harry tracks Draco's wand and realizes his true intended target, Dumbledore. But here, Dumbledore manages to find the strength to speak and begins wheedling Draco's plan out of him. Draco reveals how he fixed the vanishing cabinet in the Room of Requirement, how Death Eaters have entered the school. He was going to kill me and my whole family, Draco shouts. I, I had no choice. Understanding Draco's dilemma, as ever, Dumbledore offers him and his family protection. Draco, Voldemort has tried to kill you twice now. You don't owe him any service. We can protect you. I know what happened between you and Professor Umbridge, Dumbledore continues. That was very brave of you. You are nothing like your father. Then, in tears and much to Harry's shock, Draco falls to his knees and accepts Dumbledore's offer. But just as he does, Snape arrives on the scene and immediately rushes to Dumbledore's side, who is coughing worse than ever. Harry, feeling the situation has passed, lowers his wand as well and rushes to comfort Draco, thinking himself what lengths he might have gone to to save the people he loved. I know you had no other choice, he says in an effort to comfort him. Draco looks up, having never experienced this level of forgiveness in his entire life, but what he sees brings all of the terror back to his face. Snape's back and a flash of green light. Harry hears it too and immediately turns around to see Snape standing over Dumbledore's dead. In shock, Harry sprints to Dumbledore's side, completely missing Snape, who was going in the exact opposite direction, and commands Draco to come with him. Draco, seeing his last hope dead, turns and runs with Snape. Then, after a moment of complete dumbfoundedness, Harry realizes there's nothing he can do and turns to chase. Downstairs, a raging battle is taking place between the Death Eaters, the Teachers, the DA, and the Order of the Phoenix. Spells are flying everywhere. Snape announces Dumbledore's death and commands everyone retreat. Ron and Hermione find Harry, who tells them Snape just killed Dumbledore. They have to get him. Ron 
for some reason, is carrying what Harry recognizes to be the sorting hat. What's that for? Harry asks, looking down at the tattered fabric, but there's just no time to explain. The three of them charge outside, chasing Snape, Malfoy, and the Death Eaters, the entrance hall collapsing behind them, blocking any aid from anyone else inside. They fire spell after spell, but can't seem to land a hit. Snape turns around to see who's pursuing them and spies Harry, Ron, and Hermione. He immediately stops, turns, and commands the others to retreat to the barrier. Harry stops as well and screams at Snake, accusing him of killing Dumbledore, and he immediately admits to it. Harry is enraged, and he fires spell after spell after spell at Snape, who easily blocks them all with his wand. Suddenly, from behind Harry, Ron charges directly at Snape, who again blasts Ron back with yet another spell. But as he falls, something silvery falls from the hat. Ron grabs it and rises again with the sword of Gryffindor. Snape eyes the sword and says, Well, Weasley, I didn't think you had it in you, but no matter. I have more powerful spells than you can deal with. And with that, an enormous fiery serpent large enough to rival even that of the basilisk erupted out of the tip of Snape's wand. Fiend fire! yells Hermione. Harry stares in awe as the giant snake slithers through the air and onto the ground, lighting everything around it, including Hagrid's hut, on fire. And for the first time that night, Harry felt like he truly had no idea what to do. He was positive Parcelmouth wouldn't work on this snake. But then, to his horror, he sees Ron rush past him once more, sword raised and screaming. No, Ron, don't! But it was too late. There was no stopping him. Fear gripped Harry as he watched the serpent lunge at Ron, who plunged the sword upward. The light was almost blinding, but as he watched, more and more of the snake disappeared into the sword until it was all gone. All that was left to light the night was Hagrid's hut, which was still ablaze. Harry looked up to see Snape watching the scene unfold, and then, without giving a second thought, remembered a spell from his potions book. Four enemies. Snape reacts a moment too late, and Harry's spell connects, severing his hand and destroying his wand. At this moment, Ron collapses from the effort of holding the sword, and Harry and Hermione rush to him. Snape takes the opportunity to escape, one-handed, and Harry never learns the identity of the Half-Blood Prince. In the aftermath of the battle, Harry finally learns what happened back at the castle with Ron and Hermione. Ron tells him that after Harry left, they noticed the dark mark in the sky and they tried to alert as much of the DA as they could and alert the Order immediately. They divided up the Felix Felicis among them, but as soon as Ron took his swallow, he felt compelled to visit Dumbledore's office. He wasn't sure exactly why, but he headed straight there and immediately guessed the password. It just felt like the place to be, you know, said Ron. And once I was in there, I don't know, I saw the hat and grabbed it. I wasn't sure why, I was just doing what the potion told me. Friday then fills in everyone's gaps in knowledge about the Sword of Gryffindor because of course she's read about it. It's said to appear to any Gryffindor in a time of need, and it must be Goblin made, which is why it was able to absorb the fiend fire. And from there, of course, Dumbledore's funeral is held and it's as sad as ever. Harry rediscovers the locket from the cave and realizes it's a fake Horcrux, that the real one's already been taken by the mysterious R.A.B. And as the three of them sit outside, Ron jokes that between his sword and Harry's basilisk, they might just stand a chance against Voldemort. Harry says Dumbledore reckoned his most powerful weapon was still love. As he does so, he meets Hermione's eyes and she kisses him. To which Ron just rolls his eyes and says, about time. And that is what happens in year six if Harry Potter had been sorted into Slytherin. Guys, thanks so much as always for watching this series. We are having an absolute blast writing it. Thanks again if you sent any artwork in last week. If you wanna send in more artwork, I would love to see what it looks like when Ron is facing down the fiend fire. You can submit that 
uh, to this email address right here. Thank you in advance. If you haven't liked the video yet, please do that and subscribe to the channel. It really does help us out. If you wanna see another big seven part series, you can check out this video right here where we go over how Dumbledore controlled all of Harry's life. It's called Dumbledore's Big Plan. Super fun, seven parter. Hope you'll check it out. Otherwise, Ben, until next time, I will see you in another life.